Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are two much-missed members who have not been here for a little while. Uh, fresh from Camp Waters in Baltimore is uh, Sally Christie. Um, yeah, I'm back and you're not getting rid of me for a long time now, so get used to it. Yeah, It's, look, <laughs> it's nice to be back. <laughs> It's, your fringe is somewhat tussled and it's kind of, it's a whole different look. I know. I'm, it's just the I'm, a different, I'm a different woman now. <laughs> I've come back different. I don't know if I can, I'd know how to talk about film anymore. We'll see how we go after this episode. <laughs> there might be, you know, uh, a contest on who is the most, you know, filthy in the room. <laughs> and fresh from film festival gadabouting and various other personal adventures. Have I been? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I have been. No? No. No. <laughs> Is that a euphemism for something I, I'm slow on the uptake on today? It's been a while. I haven't been in the cave for four weeks or so, I think. No, it's been... I think it's been four weeks. It has. Yep. Yeah, four weeks for me as we've, well. Long time. We've missed you all. Missed you both dearly. Yep. I like what you've done with the place. Looks nice. It does. Thanks. Yeah, yeah I tarted it up. I decided to take all the Radiothon major prizes uh, pictures down. <laughs> Just... Wasn't adding flair. Uh, <laughs> nice to have you both back. On tonight's show, we sail into troubled waters with Rod Rathjen's human trafficking drama, Buoyancy. We see the writing on the wall, or rather in the haunted book, with Andre Ovredal's scary stories to tell in the dark. And we find out why the cat is the most dangerous animal on earth. In our retro title for this evening, Yorgos Lantimos's berserk breakout film from 2009, Dogtooth. But first, buoyancy. Chakra, played by Sam Heng in what I believe is his acting debut, is a 14-year-old boy frustrated with his apparent lot in life, working the Cambodian rice fields with his family for no money, with only the promise of working for his brother in those same fields lying ahead. His father tells him he's got a roof over his head and regular meals. What else does he want? Eager for quick cash to move his life forward and eager for a life of possibility in Thailand, Chakra slips away in the middle of the night to work illegally for a Thai factory, or so he thinks. Because Chakra doesn't have any money to pay off the foreman he uh, meets originally, he and another older man in the same position are shunted onto a fishing trawler, where it's clear that they're very much off the grid, expected to work off their debt for endless hours and little rest, and if they complain, the ship's tyrannical captain will simply kill them and find someone else. Based on true testimonies from people caught in the illegal modern slavery of the underground Thai fisher trawling industry, Chakra will have to make some of the toughest choices of all to survive. Sally, did this have you instantly jumping online to research ethically sourced brands of pet food? Uh, pretty much it did. <laughs> this film, I'll straight away say it's the feel-good film of the year. <laughs> no, it abso- absolutely not, but it was... An exceptional film. It was screening at MIF. I didn't catch it at MIF, so I I just watched it, I think, yesterday. Um, Sorry, I'm still a bit jet-lagged, but yesterday. I'm sure I watched it. Um, I I, I don't think I could say a bad word about this film. It was beautifully shot. The cinematography was incredible. All the performances in this film were absolutely immaculate and to think that most of the cast, I think, have no act- acting experience, possibly, from what I read. Uh, 
Some did. The older gentleman who plays the other guy who's brought on the ship, he is a professional actor. But okay. I think, yeah, there's a lot of the cast who, who are in their first time, yeah. It also highlighted, I guess, my own ignorance about their levels of exploitation and abuse that were associated with the fishing industry in Southeast Asia. I felt like I, I didn't have a lot of knowledge of this and I came away from this film feeling quite shocked and confronted. It was handled in a really... I. I don't want to say gentle way, but the, the, the film is really confronting. Uh, it is quite violent as well, but the way that the violence was dealt with in this film was, I guess, I don't I don't want to say delicate, but it was... It's very matter of fact. Yeah. And, they don't dwell on things. And they don't dwell on things and it's able, for, I guess, you know, if you, something... That, you're not into watching gore or something like that. It's been handled in a way that you can watch this. Mm. Um, it was an incredible film. Like, I, I really took my breath away, this film. It's gone up straight onto my top ten list for the mm. year. I really, really loved it and I was really upset by it. It just, you know, hit me right in the guts. It, it was, you know, beautiful film. Mm. That's right. I have lots of feelings, mm. yes, um, and questions, and um, yeah, I too am very impressed by the filmmaking, and very impressed by the largely non-professional cast. I mean, if you do want authenticity on screen, it, it does pay to seek people who don't act, capital A act, who yeah. just are. Not Natalie Portman. Um, <laughs> why Natalie in this oh, She's also, she's capital A acting post, always. Post Vox Lux, <laughs> yeah. we've had a Sally Knox, uh, <laughs> Natalie Portman uh, scoreboard in the background. It's currently up to 87. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, look, if she'd suddenly materialised in this film, that really would have broken it, the spell. Uh, this is a harrowing film, and um, rightly so, given the story it's telling. I, I'm very curious how the particular people who made the film came to feel compelled to make it. It's an Australian film. Mm. It's not an Australian story. And it was a MIF premiere funded film, um, rather better than many of them tend to be, rather more polished and finished feeling. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, I'm not, it's not to say Australians shouldn't tell Southeast Asian stories, um, but when a first world filmmaker tells the story of exploitation of third world peoples by other third world peoples, I, I do have a little unease. Mm -hmm. I wonder who is this film for? Um, because a film like this is really going to get a pretty narrow release. It's not going to hit the multiplexes. It's not going to be vying for box office success with the latest Avengers film out at the, the Knox City 20 cinema monstrosity or any of the other <laughs> south you know name a shopping center and append multiplex or googleplex to it where what however many screens these things tend to have these days i mean maybe this will end up on a on curriculum which would be great if this was safe yeah, and that I that's that. where because mm. this is clearly meant to be a bit of a didactic element to a story like this mm. just trying to think you know why is this film made who is it for okay great if it does get shown to in schoolrooms, and hopefully it's put in some sort of context where we don't, where it's not just sort of pity porn, if you know what I mean. Mm. I, I always feel just a little bit of unease with this this sort of material made by someone from well outside of that world. Um, 
On the other hand, uh, you know, just weirdly, I put this into a, a Hollywood context watching it as well, because it actually reminded me of Captain Blood, a 1935 hmm. Errol Flynn starrer in which he um, wrongly winds up in the, uh, what do they call it, the galley of a, a slave ship, mm -hmm. only to eventually, oh, no, spoiler alert, but uh, overthrow <laughs> some sort of, um, you know, ha ha have to resort to some sort of villainy of his own to you know, overthrow some sort of despotic uh, villain on board a ship and and live happily ever after as Errol Flynn. How dare you spo spoil an eighty four year old movie? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It is fiendish of me to do that, but but that it's it's actually yeah, the right. same genre. It's the mm. same narrative arc. Much of it. Um, it's it's really really curious that a film that is played for entertainment way back when, but which you know maybe in nineteen thirty five people watched that and were horrified to think the what was depicted in that was not that long ago or that distant mm -hmm. though i expect mm. many people then probably thought oh well it's nothing to do with us like people yes. here in australia seeing this might go oh well it's nothing to do with us mm. um it's a shame that this happens but there you go so i do wonder um yeah i feel a little conflicted about a film such as this not being made by someone of that world but even then i'd be wondering who is it for mm. how are they going to get it to a wide audience and how do any of us even begin to get our head around the closing statistic that apparently at any given time there are about 200,000 people enslaved on fishing boats like this, mm. um, which is a, a terrifying, impossible thing for me to even wrap my head around. Yeah, it's um, it's that point when they're cleaning the ship and they have that line about what is what is this used by, uh, you know, what is this stuff used for anyway? And, you know, there was a part of me going, well, I'm a vegetarian, I don't participate in this nonsense. And they said, oh, it's used for pet food. Yeah, I, I came, like, I, I had a, a vegan smugness at one point <laughs> in this film. Yeah. But then it's like, no, I'm a pet owner and I feed my pets mm -hmm. meat, you know? Yeah, so. and it's one of the first things you get. I was yeah. like, what the? It's really hard to find, actually. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think essentially the, the writer-director, Rod Rathjen, um, Read a report on the Thai fishing industry. Um, it was quite elaborate and specific. Had interviews with survivors, and he just felt guilty because he didn't know anything about this, and kind of wanted to shine a light on it, and use, I guess, the privilege that he has to be able to go in and do that, and did it by using people who were involved, taking things from direct from uh, accounts of of survivors, because um, he he hooked up with a couple of um, NGOs. Uh, that were sort of helping um, people who had escaped this slavery uh, through um, recovery and, and getting their stories. Also, I think, um, I I'm not sure of his name, but the the guy who played the, the captain on the ship mm. was on one of these ships from the age of 11 to 13, I wow. think. I, yes. I was not aware of that. Um, so, yeah, he had been in that circumstance for but two years of his life and he was quite young. So he's not an actor. God, there's some astonishing performances yeah, in this film. Yeah, really amazing, For... amazing performances. It, oh, I can't think of the name of it now. Um, film that we looked at earlier this year as well that... Um, Used non-professional yes, actors. And it was just... That had that same kind of authenticity Happy that came as through. Lazaro? Um, no, it wasn't. Happy for that. All right, yeah, we'll no. come after the break. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll we'll do some research. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's, I liked... I liked. I thought this film was pretty great. Um, it had. It, there is a didacticism, as you say, Cerise, but there's also complexity to the characters that I really liked. Um, 
and I liked that it wasn't just a film. I, one of my bugbears lately is uh, films that are barely distinguishable, and particularly today in today's social media-driven climate, there are a lot of films that feel barely distinguishable from Facebook posts. Mm. You just watch them, they just yell at you for two hours. This was not one of those. I felt like this was really, this really put you into that situation and that headspace. Um, I thought the relationship between the captain and the kid, although we've sort of seen that a little bit in various things, I mean, sure, probably Captain Blood, I don't know, I haven't seen it, but uh, but that sort of, you know, the, the thing where he sort of takes him under his wing in a sort of weird way, but he's also still quite sadistic. And um, nothing seemed overplayed, like nothing seemed overplayed to make a point. The only thing, there is one scene, there is one character who's killed rather elaborately and that almost... That hit the point of, that's a bit much. Is that something that happens? That seems quite elaborate. But all the other ones were so matter-of-fact and so fast and so brutal. It's, it, it's clearly like, yeah, you you don't have any trouble believing that this occurs. Mm. And it's treated in a way that, yeah, that it, it doesn't whack you over the head with this stuff. It's like, yeah, this is just the everyday brutality of what these people have to live with. And... And it is structured like a thriller in a lot of ways. And I, I did appreciate that in terms of, um, you know, giving it that sort of narrative thrust. Like, this film was flew by. It was actually really tightly structured. Yeah, I thought that too. And at times it felt like I was almost watching a documentary. Mm. And other times, you know, it felt like a feature film because there's a thriller aspect to it as well. So it was – the pacing was brilliant, I thought. Mm. And Sam Heng is fantastic in the lead. Like, he's just got this beautiful kind of stillness to mm. him and the way he carries the film. You'd think he'd been an actor since he was, you know, tiny. Um, but, yeah, I, I just I was very, very impressed by this. And, um, and, and I think, too, I think in terms of it's – I think you're right, sorry, so I think adding it to a curriculum or something would be a great idea in terms of just shining a light on this sort of stuff because I think it's something that we're not aware of yeah, I, in the I, West. When I watch this, I, I felt – Completely not stupid, but I, I was like, this is something that I feel that I have no knowledge of and mm. it's like I, I can't believe that I am not knowledgeable about this and it's something that I should be aware of more and, you know, so I definitely think that it could be added to curriculum 100%. So many human rights um, infractions yeah. today, it's hard to keep track. So well, and like, animal rights. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I'm sure our, our pets, were they um, of a... a, a you know, had the capacity to engage with the moral dimensions of a film such as this. They'd probably rather their fish was sourced more ethically. I guess so. Oh, we like to think. I'm going to ask who, my cats when always, I get home. Yeah, <laughs> pet owners will project all manner of things onto their pets, won't they? Yeah. My, my cat's kind of an asshole. I don't know. <laughs> She's a jerk. We love her. Um, Isn't she a subscriber <laughs> to this station? No, she should be, though. See, again, yeah, asshole. Right. Asshole. Asshole yeah. cat. Um, <laughs> buoyancy is... Now I think we we could uh, pretty confidently confidently say buoyancy is uh, is Plato's Cave approved and it is now screening at selected independent cinemas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So three unnamed, uh, well, a family of unnamed people, an adolescent son, two adolescent daughters. Well, they seem adolescent, but, you know, they might as well be in their early 20s, but they act like children. 
are raised by their parents in a fenced compound. The children have no knowledge of the outside world and they say that uh, the only way they'll ever be able to leave the compound is if they lose a dog tooth. Um, one can, and the other rule is that one can only leave, sa- leave the compound safely by car, which their father has sole access to. Um, the children entertain themselves with endurance games, such as holding their finger under hot water, holding their breath underwater, all sorts of things. Um, we hear vague talk of a brother who has left, has gone to the other side of the fence, Son's car, um, and they throw supplies and stones to, to him to try and make contact, but we never see or hear from him. The parents uh, monitor the endurance games and contests, rewarding good behaviour with stickers and <laughs> bad behaviour with uh, abusive uh, violence. The father also plays a security, pays a security guard at his factory, Christina, to come to the house and have sex with the son. Um, for some reason, uh, the girls don't seem to have the same <laughs> the same service provided to them, uh, and, and essentially um, she gets in, uh, involved. The family as well, uh, frustrated by the son's refusal to give her cunnilingus. Tr- Christina starts trading with the daughters for exchange from for cunnilingus from them. As you can tell by the synopsis, things get very, very, very weird. No way. I, and believe it or not, this is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. <laughs> he of the the lobster, killing of a sacred deer, and the, the favourite. So not weird at all. Cerise, this was your retro pick for the week. Well, they even named a wave of filmmaking after the weirdness of these films and just simply called it the Greek weird wave. And this is as weird as any of them. Uh, it, it has all of the... For people who've come to Lantimos after the Greek films, which actually include myself, um, they won't be surprised. I think this has actually got much the same sensibility as The Lobster had or Killing of a Sacred Deer. The favourite was perhaps a little more user-friendly, a little more accessible, mm. but those two pre- previous films are pretty much of a... Uh, they're, they're kindred spirits to this one, which is so coldly, strangely weird... And at times it's very funny, but other times it's just so unfunny. It's creepy and, <laughs> and yeah. uh, just a little uh, wrong. It just, is there <laughs> a so, little wrong. Uh, yeah, well, it, yeah, really very wrong um, in, that, in that way that it, it's so deadpan. It's, it's beyond deadpan, sort of post-deadpan or something. <laughs> we need new, new uh, nomenclature for the level of deadpan in his films. Uh, it's violent. There's quite a bit of sex. All of it, of course, weird and <laughs> wrong. And it's really, I think it's, uh, it's, is it a film for everybody? I suspect not. <laughs> if people had always thought they, they wanted Michael Haneke just to be that little bit more perverse, mm. um, they'd arrive at Lantimos around this time in his career, I would suggest. This has a hint of funny games about it. Yeah. Uh, both versions of Haneke's. Disturbing home invasion film. Here it's not a home invasion, it's just, well, folks are held hostage, so in a way it's quite similar. Um, These poor kids who are, I guess, adults, but kids really, so naive, they believe planes fall from the sky and uh, when they land they're basically toys. Mm -hmm. They they believe the darndest things, but this is a world in which words don't carry conventional meanings. The the film opens with... um, 
their lexicon expanding by way of a recording in which they're introduced to some new words which are then put into nonsensical sentences. Nonsensical to us because we know that that's not what those words mean. But it signifies from the very outset that nothing is as it seems or should be in this film. And that um, any communications between people in positions of authority and their charges, the people for whom they are responsible, are going to be very highly compromised and illogical and um and wrong and sinister <laughs> and and gee this is not this is not um exactly what you would wish to show to anybody you wish to somehow convince of the merits of homeschooling <laughs> i read someone somewhere say that this is basically a documentary about homeschooling <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <laughs> um I, I really think that I love this film. It was great to revisit this. It's great. Uh, it was great to revisit this as well after sort of the favourite and how that's blown up and how Lanthimos's Moss's career is, you know, just huge now. Is there possibly a less likely filmmaker to have blown up in yeah, Hollywood? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but it's one thing that I I really took away from rewatching Dogtooth is. It's so funny. Like it is so funny. There's point there's so many points in this film where I'm just in absolute hysterics. The where she's doing flash dance, the classical guitar, like <laughs> it's just hilarious. Like it's not often I come away from a film and I, my face feels sore from laughing so much, but this is one of those. Um one thing I love in particular about this, and I think there's a lot of parallels between um Dogtooth and the killing of a sacred deer is the dialogue and the way it's delivered and how it's so matter-of-fact and to the point that it is completely absurd. And that was definitely my favourite thing about The Killing of a Sacred Deer and then I could see that when I was revisiting Dogtooth here. And another kind of thing that we've seen throughout his career that perhaps... I guess started in Dogtooth is the way that he approaches sex in films mm. is oh, it's so fascinating <laughs> how it's just this rigid thing that just it just has to be done. Um, and like there's a carnal need there, but it's like, yeah, oh, we it's got, just like, oh, I need this, we this. have to do this. But no one inhabits their body in a no. conventional fashion no. throughout the whole film. No. And those kids, especially, are so incredibly. Awkward yep. in their own bodies. And that, it's, it's that, only in yeah. like children. Yeah, it's only yeah. in the favorite where we see him approaching sex as something that is pleasurable. You know, something that is enjoyable but by even, both partners. But even then, it's a bargaining. Yeah, that's true. Well. That's true. Um, but it's. I think in all of his films, kind of leading up to the favorite, there's nothing sensual to do with sex whatsoever, which. I, 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 find in, enjoyable to watch the way that he approaches it, but um, yeah, I I really really had a good time looking at this and just seeing about yeah how it's interesting that like you said, Paul, how someone's career could blow up from a film like Doctor, because <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's something that's one of a kind. It really is. Mm-hmm. Have, have any of you seen Elps? His follow-up film to this? I haven't seen Alps, actually. No, no, I missed that. Did you see it? No, no. that's one I want to seek out as well because sort of everyone's kind of jumped from this yeah. to The Lobster. Because The Lobster was the first film of his that I saw mm. and then I went back and saw Dogtooth from there and, um, yeah, I, I don't know why it hasn't happened, why I haven't seen Alps. Well, there's an earlier, at least one earlier feature too. Yes, too. there and is. I've heard that Kinetta is supposed to be pretty fun. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and there's my best friend or something, but that doesn't look of a piece with everything else. I think Kaneta is with a piece with the mm. rest of it. Um, some curious stuff with this film. I I saw it 10 years ago, uh, pretty almost to the month, uh, at MIF. So this is my first time I've, I've revisited it 10 years, and I've had a ball with it like you two. Um, I, yeah, it's like... Yeah, it's like if Haneke were a little, a little funnier, you know. It's like a little. Yeah, like Haneke, if Haneke dealt in absurdist comedy, we'd get Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, um, I loved it with the language uh, reappropriating words to mean different things. I love the way information is revealed in this film. Yeah, and we find out there's something that all the words because because most words mean what they mean to us. But the, the words that have different meanings to the kids that they're being taught all are all have a link. Mm. Realise that they're all things that they do without. They're all mm-hmm. things they'll never see. They're all things that they'll never... And it's, it's all those things that... Are, it's all things that their parents have shielded them from mm-hmm. that have other meanings. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's at one point... Uh, not to go into spoilers, but there's at one point something happens um, and a cat unfortunately wanders its way into the yard <laughs> and meets a pretty awful end. And the father sees an opportunity as a boy. He's like, the cat is the most dangerous. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say what is, but, yeah, it's pretty great. Um, there's been some talk over this film. Apparently um, there's a, a Mexican film from the early 70s called The Castle of Purity from oh. 1973 um, from Arturo Ripstein, and uh-huh. it's about a disciplined and sexually driven man who keeps his family isolated in his home for years to protect them from the evil nature of human beings while inventing this kind of world from the outside. And as apparently uh, a few people have talked about it as a, a possible influence on this. That's okay. curious because about the time this film came out, there were more and more horrible stories emerging from like parts the, of Europe. Fritzel, Fritzel and, yeah, and Austria, oh, that yeah. kind of stuff was happening yeah, and people, there was all these parallels mm. kind of people drawing this with the Joseph Fritzl situation and mm. I, I remember one of the um, most apt one of the uh, I remember one was in the Myth Guide at the time someone described it as or the guide described it as imagine if Lars von Trier directed Big Brother <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad description no now no. am I am I to understand that Greek New Wave almost came out of the because Greece were hit hardest of anybody by the um, the global oh, well out of uh, certainly Western countries, by the global financial crisis. Um, at, the, at one point they had something like something crazy like 50% unemployment or something like that. Did, mm. did the Greek New Wave kind of come out of that, to your knowledge? I think there are suggestions that there's a link, that the, that this sudden veering towards absurdity in a lot of their well, a lot. I don't know. I mean, there's got to be a popular cinema there that is so far removed from yes. the world of Dogtooth and, and uh, <laughs> Lanthimos and Friends' output. But something something shifted there. There've been quite a, a quite a number of films of a similar sensibility. I mean, the one that this most reminded me of that well that came afterwards is Chevalier, yes, where all these absurd contests take place on board a ship between men to determine which of them is the best of all, and it's quite. <laughs> and and the director of that um, woman uh, uh, Athena Rachel Sangari was involved with Dogtooth as well. And this is, there's definitely a, a pool of talent there who've somehow all come to um, sort of maturity as filmmakers at the same time as events have happened in Greece and they've also just this uh, absurdist um, approach to film 
has has taken off. And I, I'm sure this can't all just be coincidental. No. It, that would seem a stretch. Hmm. Um, but it's... quite why it's assumed the form that it has. Like, I mean, the, the, the subject of the... You know, if something's being satirised here, it's the middle classes. This is a desperately bougie house mm. that yeah. these kids are imprisoned in. And the father is clearly some kind of magnate. Like, he runs a factory. Well, and yeah, so patriarchy is definitely getting skewered here as well. Yeah. Um, the matriarch of this family is this absolutely acquiescent creature who stays at home seemingly quite willingly and goes along with this all. So it's, that's quite perplexing too. Yeah, mm. her role is really interesting, the role of the mother in this film, because I think that she's the one that we see the least of or mm. that feels, you know, has the least part of the storyline whatsoever in this film. Everyone else seems to have sort of more dominance over everything than she does. She's the most submissive character I think that we see. Yeah, she seems willing but also at times quite empathetic. Like mm-hmm. there's times she has a kind of reactions to things that aren't quite as cold as everybody else yeah um yeah i i feel like yeah this is if if you are a fan i know there are lots of fans of the lobster and killing of sacred deer and the favorite and if you want to see where that where that mind <laughs> kind of began to bloom um absolutely seek out Dogtooth. uh i think it's yeah i, I think it's a, a bit of a modern classic in that regard bit of a sad postscript though uh mary sony who plays the younger daughter mm-hmm. um died a couple of years ago oh, at really? the age of 30 yeah she died of a uh is a pulmonary edema and she used to she was a punk musician rather than an actress okay. she was sort of brought into this but yeah she was just 29 um Sad, sad news. But um, she's terrific in the movie. I love her face. I just found her face really fascinating, her re- reactions to things. Yeah, she is incredible. And speaking of sad news, uh, I don't know if this got mentioned last week because I wasn't here, but we lost Sid, Sid Haig. Was not mentioned, no. Yeah. Um, I know normally we, we mention our our people that have passed away at the beginning of the episode. But, yeah, we lost Sid Haig, which is, I think, a a great loss. He was, you know, has contributed to many excellent films over the years, like Spider Baby, which we talked about earlier earlier this year. I think that was his first film. But, yes, so just paying respects to Sid. Yeah, Sid was a a great character actor um, in exploitation films in the 70s. He was one of the Jack Hill company with him popping up in Coffee and Foxy Brown and, Mm -hmm. as he said, Spider Baby. And then uh, more modern, he became one of Rob Zombie, for better or worse, one of Rob Zombie's stock company. Um, He was incredibly memorable as Captain Spaulding in the the so-called Firefly trilogy, which are um, The House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and Three from Hell, which is about to have its premiere at Monsterfest. Yes. In a couple of weeks. Yeah. So yeah, that, mm. as far as I know, it's possibly his last movie. Yeah, it was his last film. So, uh, Valet, Sid. Um, Sorry, I just completely threw that. No, that's, no that's great. Um, no, I, I, I'm sad I didn't mention it. Um, but, yes, I, he was wonderful. Um, I always got a kick out of the scene where he plays the judge in Jackie Brown, sentencing Jackie yes. Brown. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, those two were in heaps of films together in the 70s and the Jack Hill films. That was a really cute nod. So, uh, R.I.P. Uh, the wonderful Sid Haig. But back to Dogtooth. Dogtooth is uh, now streaming on Canopy and is currently available to rent or buy from Apple Tune, uh, iTunes, Apple Movies, Apple Tunes, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. Triple R. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Adapted from the popular American young adult horror novel series of the early 2000s, 
It's set in 1968, where three teenage friends in the small town of Mill Valley, Pennsylvania, Stella, an amateur author obsessed with the horror genre, and her friends, Augie and Chuck, play a prank on bully Tommy Milner on Halloween night. When Tommy and his gang chase them in retaliation, the trio flees to a drive-in movie theater that happens to be showing 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead, where a drifter named Ramon hides them in his car. Later, they invite Ramon to explore a local haunted house, which once belonged to the wealthy Bellows family, who helped found Mill Valley. Inside, they find a secret room and a book of horror stories written by Sarah Bellows, the mysterious youngest daughter who seems to have been erased from all the paintings and photos and records, and about whom there are lots of local legends. Having followed the group, Tommy, that bully we mentioned earlier before, locks them inside the room uh, along with Ruth, Chuck's sister and Tommy's sometime girlfriend. They, the kids escape after being released by an unseen presence. And soon things start getting very strange. The book itself begins writing stories by itself that seem to foretell terrible ends to the kids involved who begin disappearing one by one. Sally, did you read this film or did this film read you? I don't know. I just saw it this afternoon. Um, It's interesting how we're getting this big wave of, I guess, horror nostalgia, Stephen King-esque films. I know this is clearly based on an other author's work. Who was probably um, basing his, his work, work on, on Stephen, Stephen King. King. Uh, but, yeah, it's interesting that we're having this kind of big wave of nostalgia come through at the moment. Uh, and it's this, this felt to me like a whole bunch of great horror uh, classics watered down for a tween audience, which I think is definitely its purpose, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, it's yeah, you know, very much had that kind of Stranger Things flavor, um, Goonies, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't think it's a bad thing. It gives you know a younger audience kind of a gateway to horror cinema. And having things like them going to the drive-in and seeing Night Living Dead, then, you know, it's like, you know, how Tarantino gives uh, audiences gateways to different kinds of cinema in that way. And um, what was the lead, the female character's name? Her name was, uh, I want to say, uh, Stella. Stella. So, and all the posters in her room. Mm. So there's... uh, She's uh, a monster kid. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that with films like this where they... Uh, I guess do their homework and then a younger audience that might be watching this is going to go and perhaps go, oh, I want to watch Night of the Living Dead or I want to watch Wolfman. You know, I I, I do really appreciate that. And I also thought um, the monsters and the creepy crawlies in this film were exceptional. Yeah. I love them. I was away for when you all discussed it too. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not sure how your discussion went on that as far as... Not, not favourably. Uh, yeah, well, I, I could assume not favourably, but having sort of recently seen that and looking at the way that they have used horror and CGI in it to compare to this was just, you know, worlds apart and this was way more successful and um, for a younger audience as well and it had a bigger impact because, yeah, the the way that... You know, the CGI horror had been used in it too was just laughable in a way that it 
shouldn't have been laughable. Does this have more traditional special effects in? Is that the... I am not 100% sure, to be honest. I am happy to say... Yes. Oh, there okay. are, Ooh, there are CG, but things you would think are CG, like the jangly man who twists around, that's uh-huh. a contortionist. Oh, really? That's See, a oh, dude that's in fantastic. a suit. I just assumed that it yeah. was all CG. Some of his, I think some of his face might have been CG'd, but for the most part, wow. it's a dude in a suit. Okay, so this is why it was more effective, yeah, because there is actually practical effects. Mm-hmm. Okay, and mm. same with the uh, the large one, because obviously all the creatures are quite distinctive from the book uh, from the books. Yep. Um, and again, this uh, the the um, the books are uh, basically short stories, mm-hmm. and they've tried to sort of link them all together here in an overarching narrative, rather than present it as an anthology film. They've got a conceit where the um, Sarah Bellows, the ghost, is writing these stories in the book to dispatch um, to yeah each of the each of the kids, uh-huh. and Stella and Ramon have to try and save them before they get snatched. Um, and so they're all attacked by creatures who are, you know, very, uh, very distinctly illustrated in the books. I, I haven't read the books. I've just, you know, read a little bit about, about them. But yeah, most of those were practical makeup effects. Um, the, 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 the corpse looking for her, to- her toe is played by Javier Botet, who has been used in everything from Wreck to The Conjuring. Um, so yeah, there is that, that marriage. The thing always works best. In horror, that marriage of CGI and practical effects. Yeah, I, I, cause, yeah, really I honestly done. just assumed that it was all just CG. Mm. And I was in my mind kind of that comparison to it too and how much how more successful this was. It's, so, yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. Uh, you, you, you're um, speaking my language here. This is uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, I it's it's tough not to compare this to the it movies and that was one reason I came out of this film really enjoying it because it's so much better than the it films mm. and it's about as third the length um, <laughs> in an hour and 48 minutes you get the whole same past nostalgia thing you get the whole you know leaning on horror tropes from you know creaky haunted houses and you know beasties that come you know that come in the middle of the night to snatch you from under the bed and all of this sort of uh, thing um it's uh it's so much uh more more effective i mean there's times it's corny as heck there's one scene in particular with the kids in the back of the car deliver a like an, an atom bomb of exposition dump over a 2 minute scene of dialogue um but for the most part i i think it's i love films like Another film I really enjoyed recently was Happy Death Day. And I feel like this and Happy Death Day feel like great gateway films to get teens into horror. This is what I felt like when I was watching it, um, Mm. that it was a a gateway film for young people. Yes. And, yeah, I so so champion that. I so support that. It was interesting as well, though, because we've seen this whole big wave of nostalgia stuff, particularly, like, leading on from Stranger Things and the first It film with 80s nostalgia, how this was going back to 68. So we're looking at that 60s nostalgia and how they really had the topic of Vietnam throughout this film Mm. and how Vietnam was such a big impact on horror cinema that we got from there, like Last House on the Left, Night of Living Dead that was in this film. So, yeah, I, I found that interesting how they were taking that back even further and, um, yeah, looking at this big, you know, sort of horrific event that did lead to a lot of our iconic horror films that we have now. Yeah, it's interesting because mm. I, I was a little confused about that context. Like, I, I to a certain extent, I was thinking, oh, I guess the books are set in 68. I don't know. But in terms of, like, because there's a lot of references to Richard Nixon. Yes. 
and the election of Richard Nixon. And and I think that's a really interesting point you make. Oh, and it's sorry, I've, I've just decided to. It's it's our night for knocking things off the yeah. stage and gesticulating with our hands. Um, but. Uh, the idea of, um, yeah, like 68 was essentially uh, a lot of film historians have boiled that down to that's when the new horror began, yep. particularly in the case in America. And, you know, but yeah, like watching it, I couldn't help thinking is is the main reference, hey, remember the last time it seemed the world was going crazy and we had a shit president? Mm. <laughs> it seemed crazy. Yep. Like it seemed to be kind of referring to that. I, I, I don't know. It was... It was a little strange. Yeah, the Nixon up. stuff didn't really seem to go anywhere no. in the film. Um, the Vietnam stuff, to begin with, yeah, I was wondering where that was going. It did end up going somewhere. But, yeah, the, the Nixon stuff, I felt, kind of fell a bit flat with this. Yeah, and there's undercurrents of small-town racism, like yes. the way the sheriff treats um, Ramon and, mm-hmm. and uh, the way Tommy bullies Ramon and things like that. Um, that sort of obviously speak to some of the times we're going through now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, man, if you want a you know a horror film to show your teen kids or little brother or sister or whatever uh, this school holidays, I think you can do a lot worse. I think there's a, there's a lot of fun. To yeah, be this is this the one. one. Like I saw this today, and it was well clearly it's school holidays, and it was the audience was pretty much full of you know, 12 and 13-year-olds. And I was like, yes, good, good. Yeah. It doesn't rely too heavily. Like, there's jump stairs, scares, but it's not, like, just loud noises. No, exactly. It's not an over-reliance on CGI. Yeah. And there's some really nice homages to other, you know, horror films. Like, I've, I feel the bit with, you know, the uh, the pimple was kind of a throwback to demons. Yes. With Jaretta Jaretta's character in that there. Was stressful. And that, it was stressful. That's... And there's the, the moose head, which is, you know, evil dead. There yes. was lots of stuff peppered throughout it. Yep. And there's so much, it's like stretches of the film, like, oh, yeah, this is all pretty standard issue. And then all of a sudden I catch myself thinking, this is really stressful. I'm actually kind of, I'm Mm. actually feeling quite. Um, Also, just on a side note, the kid that played Chuck, he seemed to have quite a disturbing resemblance to a Miranda July that I just could not shake. (laughs) (laughs) It's very odd. But Scary Stories in the Dark is now screening at most major cinemas. You're listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And on tonight's show, you heard us talk about uh, Buoyancy, now screening at Selected Independent Cinemas, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, now screening at most major cinemas, and Dogtooth, now screening, uh, streaming on Canopy, if you can find it, and available to rent or buy via iTunes, Apple Movies, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand, or check out the songs we played on the Plato, uh, Plato's Cave page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will explore Birds of Passage, Joanna Hogg's uh, formative love gone wrong in The Souvenir. And for our retro title, we'll be looking at John Waters' seminal odorama scratch and sniffing <laughs> avalanches sampled classic polyester. I, I chose that. No, no surprises there. I've just got back from Camp John Waters. But, um, yeah, I chose that. There's a really beautiful Criterion release that has just come out and the artwork alone is 
absolutely gorgeous of Tap Hunter and Divine. I want it framed in my house. So, um, yeah, so that was my, my pick for next Thy week. I will be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it comes with an odorama card. It too, does. Which yes. is amazing. <laughs> um, so a huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website. <laughs>